Well, we are nine days away from Passover. Does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say Passover? Nine days away from Passover. So when you think of uh, Passover, probably the best word to describe this season, uh, the reason we celebrate Passover is redemption. Redemption. And that's why for the month of April, we're focusing on the Redeemer. Uh, Last week, I I did share a little bit about the Passover. We shared about um, what God did through Moses, what God did through uh, Jesus. And one of the things that I mentioned as well is that the Seder revolved around four cups. There were four cups that they would share during the ceremony, the course of the ceremony. And we shared that those four cups are the four I wills found in Exodus 6, chapter 6. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will uh, redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own. Those four I wills found in Exodus 6 are what the four cups in that that Jewish Seder, that Passover Seder meal, uh, they both correlate that way. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out. I will take you from here and put you over here. I will separate you from from that. I will um, set you apart from that. I will sanctify you. So the first cup is sanctification. Sometimes it's called the cup of blessing. Um, The second cup is the cup of plagues, sometimes called the cup of judgments. He says, I will deliver you. I will send these plagues upon the Israelite, uh, the Egyptians, and I will deliver you, um, use these plagues to deliver you out. Sorry, I got totally distracted. Did y'all see that light bulb pop? Y'all didn't see it? My ADD kicks in, I'm done. Y'all, sh- y'all ready for lunch? <laughs> Let's just go. Sorry. Oh. Anyway, sorry. You know, what is that? Is it Bugs Life? You know, where the bugs was, I can't help it. I remember that. Anyway. So you have the cup of sanctification. You have the cup of plagues. The third cup is the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. And I said this last week. You may not have been here and you may not be able to listen to the podcast, but I want you to know this uh, in case you you haven't heard it or you're not going to be able to hear it on the podcast or whatever. The third cup, the cup of redemption, is the cup that Jesus lifted up during that last supper when he said, this is my blood poured out for many. When we take communion, when believers take communion, when we, when we drink that or dip or whatever we do, that is the third cup that's found in the Passover Seder. And there's a lot of things that we don't know um, that come, that we practice or we do or point to Jesus that come directly from the, from the Jewish culture. But that third cup, the cup of redemption, is the communion cup that we take. And the fourth cup is the cup of Hallel. Hallel is the, is the Hebrew word for praise. The cup of praise. He says, I will take you as my own. Now, one of the things I said last week is that the first two cups are actions against oppression. Please hear me. They're actions against oppression. I will bring you out of there, bring you out of the bondage, the slavery, the idol worship, all of those things. I'm going to bring you out of that oppressive situation. I will deliver you from that oppressive situation. Redemption defeats the enemy and frees God's people to do what it is they were called to do and to be what it is that they were called to be. The third cup of redemption enables the first two cups, the cup of sanctification and the cup of judgments or the cup of plagues to become realities for us. 
that fourth cup is the cup that points to that intimate relationship that we have with God by saying yes to the redemption that he provides. The gift of freedom is given to us, but it has to be accepted by us. And when it is, when we say yes, I think I'll, I'll take that gift, that wonderful gift. We are redeeming and we enter, and we enter into a unique walk with God. And it's called uh, intimacy. It's an intimate relationship with God. In fact, I want you to say these two words. Say intimate relationship. Say it again. Intimate relationship. That last cup, the cup of Hallel, the cup of praise, that last cup, the final product, if you will, of redemption is communion. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then he says, I will take you as my own. If you have King James, the King James Version says, then I will take you to me as a people. And that word take right there is literally the word that the Hebrews would also use for marriage. I will marry you to me as a people. That word for people is basically, it means family. It literally translates kinsmen. So it's like God is saying, I will stretch out my arms and I will take you as my bride. You will become part of my family. You will take my name. And this relation, this eternal relationship happens there. If you're writing things down, I want you to write this. Redemption provides communion. Redemption provides communion. Redemption provides intimacy with God. Now, there's a lot of people that check out as soon as you start talking about intimacy with God. There's a lot of people that start checking out when you start talking about intimacy with anybody, especially men, especially men. And I'm not sure why that is. It's crazy because some of the most intimate encounters that God has with people in the, in the Bible is with, with men. And we check out sometimes. Oh, intimate. Okay, let's... Uh, uh. I really believe that, that we were created to be close to God. Psalm 139 if you've ever read it, it talks about how he knows us and how he uh, is near us and we can't flee from his presence. We can't get away from him. He so wants to be near us. And we've been talking about that really probably for the past several weeks, that God wants us, that God has a desire to be with us. And so I guess the reality is, is that we are the ones who have a problem with intimacy. And even now as I say that, some of you, some of you in this room are probably like, that word. Maybe not so much the word, but the idea of what it means. This past week I was, I was watching my dog chase cars. <laughs> About three years ago. How many years ago did we get Shiloh Bay? About three years ago for Christmas, uh, Melissa's dad shows up with a, with a blue healer puppy. A blue healer is a type of uh, shepherding dog, like a cow dog. And uh, they call them blue healers because they, they nip at the toes of the cows or whatever it is that they're going to be herding. They are, they are born, bred to herd cattle or herd whatever it is, sheep, I suppose, whatever it is that they're supposed to, to herd. And so we got this dog, and it was a puppy. And from the get-go, this dog is running around, nipping at the heels of 
any hill that he could find. Usually my boys, my boys are out playing, and he's literally running around the yard nipping at them, trying to herd them to wherever it is that he's trying to herd them. The craziest thing you've ever saw. And even when they're on their bicycles, to this day, when they're on their bicycles, and, and sometimes we all ride bicycles and do this thing around the yard, he will be run- he's nipped at my heels. I'm like, you know, kicking at him, get off me, dude, you know. But he's nipping at my heels while I'm, he's just trying to, round, he's trying to hurt us. And one of the things, this dog, man, I'll just tell you this story too. Every time we come home, Shiloh, you know, he's laying out under a tree or he's on the back porch or he's just like doing nothing. But as soon as he hears the, the tires crunching on the, the gravel in the driveway, you can see him he's like that. And he jumps up and he starts prancing, <laughs> prancing around the yard, acting like he's doing something productive. And he'll jet to the, to the pasture and like act like he's chasing some bird or he, sometimes he'll just and it's just so, I guess, to prove his worth, to earn his keep. I don't know what he's doing, but it is the funniest thing you've ever seen in my life. But one of the things that he'll do is he, he's a bad, bad, well, I guess he's a good car chaser. He's good in the sense that he's really fast. You know, those dogs are designed to run really fast because they're herding cattles and, cattle and they're doing their thing. Super fast dog. And he will literally wait and listen and as soon as the car comes, you start seeing him kind of going, and the car jets past, and he's just like, Phew! and you just never see a dog that fast, but he's chasing and running. He's just like, <laughs> and you see every muscle's like, rough, 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 you know. And he's just running, 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 running. But I'm like, why does this dog chase cars? You know it's going to get him killed. Shiloh, dude, you are going to die one of these days chasing cars. How many of you have had a dog die because he's chasing cars? Yeah, it's inevitable. But the thing is, it's like, what else is he supposed to do? He's created to herd cattle. We don't have cattle. Yes, we have boys, but they're not near as big, you know? And I got to thinking about it, you know... We live on a small piece of land, and we have land around us and, and all that, but he, he is, he's chases cars up and down. He's got a little trail, for about a half-mile trail that he runs. And I got to thinking this week, Shiloh's culture, his atmosphere, his stomping grounds are not conducive for herding cows. It's not what we've trained him to do. He instinctively wants to. It's not something that we promote, we allow, we plan for. But that's what he wants. And, and the, you know, he belongs to the herrings. We're not cow herders. And so his atmosphere, his stomping grounds are not conducive for the very thing that he was created to do. So he looks for something else to chase. Instinctively, he's got to chase something. His, his muscles have to feel that feeling you guys know what I'm talking about? They have to. You can tell it. In. He, the way he runs, chasing a car. It's like, why? There's no food. They're not going to stop and pet you. It's like instinctive. He's got to feel all of that. His muscles and the, the, the chase and all that stuff. And I was thinking about that and just thinking about the poor dog. <laughs> we need to give him to somebody that has cows. But I got to thinking about how it's the same for us, the culture that we live in. You know, we were created to run hard after God, to chase Him with all of our might. But in our culture, 
That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to be intimate with God. Intimacy with God. Anything with God, for the most part, abroad, as a culture, as a whole, is frowned upon. So we go chasing after things that will tie into our intimate instincts. Our instincts are to be intimate with something. I told you I believe that we are created to be close to the Lord. And some of you may be saying, well, I'm intimate with God. Shoot, I took communion last week. And we did. We took communion last week, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to take communion. It's a very good thing to take communion. If you were to type in communion, if you were to Google it, all kinds of things are going to come up. The first umpteen things that you're going to find, though, are all like religious in nature, um, describing the, the symbolism in communion, describing the act of taking communion. And all that's good. It's good that when you look up communion, that they're that that's what you find. But here's what I wonder. I wonder if for some believers, for some Christians, for some, maybe communion is a symbol of a greater intimacy that's going on with the Lord. It really is a symbol of what's that, that relationship they have with Him. But I wonder if for some, it's a substitute for intimacy with the Lord. I do this, I have a walk with God. I do this. I have a walk with God. I take communion. I'm close to God. And I'll say this. There's a lot of people who have a walk with God. They really do. They have a walk with God. But the thing is, is they make sure that he's walking on the other side of the road. Yeah, I walk with God, but I have him over there. He's on the other side of the street. In other words, there's no intimate relationship with him. There's that word again, intimate the extent of their relationship with the Lord is an occasional wave across the street that's busy with all kinds of noise. That's the extent of that relationship. And that's not what communion is. That's not what communion was designed to be. You know, communion comes from the word um, commune, <laughs> obviously. To commune means to converse or talk together, usually with profound Intensity. It means an interchange of emotions, something deeper going. Intimacy. Communion equals intimacy. Communion is walking down that street, but side by side. Walking down that street side by side and even holding hands. That's the type of communion that we're talking about and that God is looking for. And that is the kind of intimacy. That is what God has provided through his redemption. Redemption provides communion. Now, if you're writing things down, I want you to write this down too. Redemption provides communion. But listen, communion demands affection. Let that sink in for a second. Communion demands, by nature of what it is, it demands affection. Intimacy by definition means a close, familiar, and usually affectionate relationship with someone else. A close and familiar and usually affectionate relationship with someone else. Now you're probably thinking, okay, redemption for us, communion. Communion demands affection. 
affectionate toward God? And I would venture to say that most in this room are not terribly uncomfortable with the thought of an intimate relationship with the Lord. But you guys, many Christians are. And maybe some in this room. There's a whole crew of people that are terribly uncomfortable with the thought of a personal relationship. There's a whole crew of people out there that would even say, personal relationship's not even found in the Bible. Show me where it says that, that you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a semantics thing, right? No, it doesn't say, one must have a personal relationship with Jesus. But isn't that the teaching of Jesus? Abide in me. I will abide in you. The Holy Spirit taking up residency in us, living in us. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are now the place where I am living. Jesus told his disciples, right now I'm with you, but very soon I will be in you. And you just dig into his teaching. And what he's basically telling, is, telling us is that I want to be close to you. It's my desire. There was a, um, a blog that I was reading about the negative vibes that are coming from that. Um, I mean, this has been going on for a while, but I read the blog recently. You guys, some of you are familiar with who John Mark McMillan is, and he has that song, How He Loves Us. How many of you are familiar with that song? There's a particular lyric that just has a lot of people stirred. Like, this is, this is blasphemy, heresy, um, every kind of sea that you can think of, you know? People are like, what? But it's the line that says, So heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. Apparently, for some, that is just too graphic of a description to put into our relationship with God. You you can't say that about worshiping God. You can't say that in a worship song. You shouldn't say that. That's just too graphic. That just conjures up all kinds of imagery. And here's the thing. One of the one of the most used words for worship in the Hebrew language literally means to to lick a hand like a dog would. To lick the to lick the hand like a dog. It's literally how it translates. Our worship towards the Lord is pretty personal, pretty intimate. To me, sloppy wet kiss totally makes sense. You know, I think about little Shiloh when he comes back from running in front of the cars. <laughs> did I do good? You know, it's like, yeah, dude, you did really good. He's like, oh, thanks. And you put your hand down there and he's like, <laughs> and in that moment, I know this sounds weird and far fetched, but he's, he's worshiping his master. There's no loyalty like a dog. It doesn't matter how many times I sick him off my kids or have to yell at him from across the yard from biting, you know, he doesn't bite, but, you know, doing his thing. He always comes back. You know, he says in his blog, you mind if I read a part of it? He says, one of the greatest abuses of the gospel is that we often wrap the message of Jesus around us, around our will, around our message There are a lot of different Jesuses out there, especially in our Western Americanized 
version of Christianity. Maybe you serve the drill sergeant Jesus who kicks your tail when you make a mistake. Maybe you're following the mommy Jesus who holds your hand, cries with you when your feelings get hurt, and tells you that it's going to get better. Maybe you're trying to follow Professor Jesus, who gives you a lot of books to read and is constantly inviting you to debates where you can prove your new superior knowledge. You might even be following popular cool Jesus that tries to fit in and be as non-offensive offensive and loving to folks as possible. If you're not comfortable with an affectionate Jesus, a sloppy wet kiss is definitely going to make you a little uncomfortable. And what I want to do is I want to show you a couple of places in Scripture where followers of Jesus showed their affection to Jesus. Is that cool? Let's turn to John 13. John 13. Most of us are very familiar with this scene. Last week, we looked in Luke. We, we looked at the uh, communion, the Last Supper scene. This week, we're just past that scene in the book of John. And I mentioned last week how right after the meal, Jesus washes their feet. If you look in verse 5, John 13, verse 5, it says, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I mean, we'll, we'll stop right there and just say, washing, I mean, I said this last week, but washing someone's feet. Back then, it was a major cultural thing they would do because they didn't have the types of shoes that we did so people's feet would get dirty they'd wash them it was a sign of humility service and, and those kinds of things but i'm just saying jesus is washing all those guys feet man to man here you know have you ever had another man wash your feet it can it's kind of uncomfortable like i said last week it can make the back of your hair you know bloop, bloop. It's, it's 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 touching it really is so even with that, you see, there's just an int- Jesus was willing to be intimate. Well, of course he is. That's what he wants. But look down in verse uh, 21. This is after that scene. He just gets through basically uh, rebuking Peter for saying he shouldn't wash his feet. It says, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one of them he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is, who you think he's talking about. Verse 25 says, And he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning back on Jesus again, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now we know he's talking about Judas Iscariot. That's not the point um, of this verse, looking at this. The point is this right here. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus, Jesus loved. And there's two words in here that just tell me that this is all about affection. When you're walking in a relationship with Jesus, affection is there. The first one is loved. It says the disciple whom Jesus loved. And some of you are familiar with the word phileo in that Greek language. You've heard that taught on or whatever before. But the word that he describes in the relationship with this person that was leaning back on his chest is phileo. And that word means to treat affectionately. 
or kindly, to welcome, to befriend. It's very much an intimate type of word that you use with someone. And not that agape love, that unconditional love isn't intimate, but this is like speaking towards that, that desire. There was a disciple that he loved that way, it says. And so I don't know if, you, if you've ever looked at or you've ever been explained how they would gather around a table back then, but they would recline, like it says, they would recline. And if this was the table right here, they would literally kind of put their feet out as far away from the table as they could. They would lean in, and they would often be leaned on one arm. They would share, and they would drink, and they would talk, and they would eat, and they would do their things. That's what it means to recline. You know, not that their feet were at the table and they were back, you know. That would be hard to eat, you know. But they did it like that. They were close. So you get this picture of all these guys reclined that way. Jesus himself reclined, his feet out, and he's... He's eating, he's drinking, and then there's this disciple that's like literally leaned back on Jesus' chest. (laughs) Who does that? Who does that? I can't, I mean, if we had to as an assignment, maybe we could get a couple of guys to come up here and model that. But I can guarantee you every one of them will be uncomfortable the whole time. Why? Because that's lost in our culture. It's lost in our culture, intimacy between men, for sure. You know? And I didn't have a whole lot of intimacy when I was growing up and, and affection and stuff uh, with my dad. But, you know, when I started having kids, it wasn't hard to be affectionate. For one, I had Christ Jesus in me. And to me, it was natural. It's natural for me to kiss the forehead or cheek or even when they were little babies, the lips of my boys. And it's even easier with little Emma Kate. You just oh, you basically want to just shove her whole head in your mouth. Oh. But that's the scene. And you know, Scripture kind of indicates that it was John who was the one that, um, that was doing this. Lean back on his chest. Not only did Jesus love him and was affectionate towards him, He was affectionate towards Jesus. He was willing to lean back on the guy's chest. It's powerful. And the other thing I think was really cool about this, I just dug in a little bit more. It says that they were reclining. He was reclining on Jesus' bosom. And this word reclining, I can't pronounce the word anakemia or something like that, but it means to lie at a table, to eat together, to dine. But the two words that it comes from to make up that one word just stuck out to me. One was in the midst or among the word Anna or Anna means in the midst or among. And the word uh, kimai or kime means appointed or destined. I just thought, how powerful. Because we are destined to dine with the Lord. We are destined to recline on the bosom of the Lord. Appointed, destined. When we were created, that kind of affection is what God had in mind. Amen? It is. Well, I, I, I took communion last week. That's good. It really is. But there's more, isn't there? The other place I wanted to show you was in Luke 7. Most of us are familiar with this too. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 36. And we're almost done. We've been talking about this a little bit at the men's Bible study. Look at uh, Luke 7, starting in verse 36. 
It says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. Keep in mind that this Pharisee was asking Jesus into his house. Hey, uh, come to my house. Dine with me. The Pharisee was asking him to come to his house and get some grub. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There's that reclining. By the way, that word reclined right there is not the exact same word in, that we found over here in John. It's a different word for reclined, which I think is very cool because the reclining that John was doing on Jesus' bosom speaks very clearly about this, this destiny to do. But this is a different word anyway. I thought I'd mention that. Um, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And she, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, talking about learned that Jesus was, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet. Now get that picture. Remember how they were? Their feet weren't up to the table. Their feet were out there behind. And here's the table. So she didn't have to come up to the table. She was standing behind him where his feet would have been. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now let me just say this. Different scholars just kind of differ on what's going on here. This could be a lady that that has heard what he's been doing, that knew that he was a savior, that knew she needed to be redeemed, saved, and so she went looking for him. Or it could have been someone that God had already, uh, Jesus had already touched, already um, ministered to, one way or the other. Either way, the fact that she was weeping is a sign that redemption is at hand, that redemption is in the midst. Redemption is on the move right here in this lady's life. One way or the other. She began to wet his feet with her tears because she was weeping. And then it says, and kept wiping them, her feet, his feet, with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing him, them with the perfume. Remember what I said. Redemption is moving here. Redemption is in the air. And look what this lady's doing. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with her hair, which means her hair had to have been down, which was a very, no, you don't do that in that culture. This scene to the Pharisees and all those sitting around the table, they were probably like, dude, how does Jesus know this girl? Why does she have her hair let down around here? Why does she wipe it? This is very intimate. You hear what I'm saying? Of course it is. Redemption leads to communion, and communion demands affection. Wet his feet, wiped his feet with the hair of her head, and then it says that she began kissing his feet. And that translation of that kissing his feet just means kissing again and again and again and again. And then it says that she anointed them. But one of the things I thought was interesting is that the the perfume that she had, it was very precious. One of the things I didn't know is that the perfumes that, that women would carry, it was so close to them. It was such a part of who they were. It was so, um, I guess, intimate to them that they were even allowed to carry it on the Sabbath. If you know anything about that culture, you don't carry nothing on the Sabbath. But women were allowed to carry their little alabaster jars, their little containers for their perfume. That's how precious this was for a woman. And she 
takes it and kind of breaks the, the, little, um, the little seal there and begins to anoint his feet with that perfume. And if you're writing things down, you can write this down because I think this is key for us. <laughs> Affection is an investment. Affection certainly towards God, even to your wife, to your kids, to your friends, to whatever. It's an investment. It's costly. Affection is an investment. But the return is a turning away from the vices that provide a false intimacy. When I invest that affection towards the Lord, when I'm willing to dive in, to enter into that personal relationship with him, something transpires in the spirit. And all of a sudden, there's a fulfillment within me that causes me to turn away from those vices that are actually producing a false sense of intimacy. And I start walking towards the Lord. Those things that once held me. But look what it says at the end. At the very, very, very end, he says, you know what, lady? Your sins have been forgiven. And he goes on to say, your faith has saved you. If you keep reading, it talks about how Jesus, well, look, it says in verse 39, it says, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, the scene, which seemed probably rated R to them. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself in his own heart, in his own mind, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. He said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. He said, a moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning, down, uh, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You invited me into the house. You invited me to dine. You gave me no water for my feet, which was customary to help them wash their feet so they'll be comfortable in the house. You gave me no water, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was customary. You gave me no kiss. You invited me in to dine. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't kiss me. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. It's another thing that they would do. And they would anoint people's head with oil, freshen them up, make them look better. They've been tired, weary, walking, whatever. They would anoint them with oil, kind of like going to the powder room. You know what I mean? You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed me, my feet, with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Communion demands affection. Now, I realize we're, we're talking about, you know, Colossians 1.5, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, both call God the invisible God. I get that. 
okay, I, I need to show affection to the Lord. How do I do that? How do I show affection to the invisible God? I don't know how many of you were here a couple of weeks ago, but Justin gave a, a really good word in the middle of worship, and he was just moved to the point of, of uh, weeping. He was, he was very beclimped, as they say. He basically narrowed it down to, what is your song? Yes, we're singing songs. Yes, they're singing. He's singing. She's singing. But what is it? He was basically saying, what is it that you have in your heart to give to the Lord? The way he said it is, what is your song? And I think this is where our affection to the Lord lies. What is it that you do to be affectionate to the Lord? What is it? What is the activity, the words? Is it singing? Is it dancing? Is it writing? You know, for me, one of the things that I do uh, that I feel the most intimate with the Lord is when I'm singing. Specifically with me and the guitar, whenever I I just pluck around a little bit on the guitar and I pick it up and I start singing and just whatever comes out sometimes. Most of the times, that's the way that herrings end their night. Boys are in their bed. I'm sitting on a stool in the room and I start singing and playing. And sometimes it's fun and silly songs. But it almost always ends with some sort of worship song or just singing something out to the Lord. Some of you, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of ways. I could start going through a list, but you guys right now are already kind of moved in your hearts like, well, this is kind of, this is what I do. I think the point is, is that it's directed to the Lord. And you, you give your affection to Him. You show Him your love. There's an intimate relationship. Not that he's on the other side of the street while you're walking, but he's literally with you holding hands. There is an intimacy that happens. You know, the, the Pharisees literally neglected to give Jesus the affection. They invited him into their home, but did not give the affection that was due to him as a guest. This morning, I just thought, it's a very simple reminder. First of all, just what, again, God's desire. His desire is to walk in relationship. God has never desired a stoic, go-through-the-motions relationship. He wants us to pour our heart out. He wants us to, to pray and to worship and to sing and to whatever it is that we do for Him. He wants us to do those things. He enjoys it. My challenge this morning is, is for us to kind of receive that, that it's okay, especially for you men. A lot of times we don't walk in that tight-knit relationship with the Lord, honestly, just because it kind of feels weird. Okay, I'm here, I'm, I'm, in, I'm reading my Bible all by myself, I'm singing to the Lord. He's not here, he, I can't see him. What if somebody walked in right now? But we have to get past that. Amen? So my challenge to you guys is to, is to leave this place today and this week and just begin asking. Maybe you already know, and some of you, most of you, I would say, most of us are already walking very intimately with the Lord. But if you're not, Lord, how can I express my love to you? Even if you're a man. Let's pray.